is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Former Supreme Court Justice and election investigator Michael Gabelman will be required to testify in court tomorrow. The Capital Times reports that Gableman is being ordered to a Dane County court to address how his office handled records related to the GOP-backed review of the 2020 presidential election. Gableman's office is the subject of a lawsuit filed by liberal watchdog group American Oversight, accusing Gableman of deleting records in response to a request for documents. The former justice, however, might not show up. A lawyer representing Gableman says he may be out of state. If he fails to appear, the judge could find Gableman in contempt. New information has been released on the controversial shooting of Quadron Wilson. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the newly unsealed affidavits contain testimony that two state agents thought someone was firing a weapon from Wilson's vehicle as they approached. The officers then started shooting, hitting Wilson five times in the back but the Dane County Sheriff's Office confirms that no weapon was found in Wilson's vehicle. His attorney says Wilson was not engaged in any behavior that can be considered violent. Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozan still hasn't announced whether he'll be filing charges against the state agents who shot Wilson during the arrest. Wilson has since pled guilty to drug charges. Tourism rose significantly last year as Wisconsin started to rebound from the pandemic. The Associated Press reports that a study from the Department of Tourism found tourism spending increased by more than 30% across the state from 2020 to 2021. Wisconsin Dells, a tourism hotspot, saw a more than 50% increase in business last year. A local bike advocacy group held a vigil this morning honoring a bicyclist who was killed in a car accident Tuesday. Madison Bikes held the vigil on Mineral Point Road near the site of the crash. Madison bike leaders say that the crash is a sign that the city needs to improve road safety, especially for bicyclists. A ghost bike was installed on the site to honor the memory of the person who died. And Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced today that she has tested positive for COVID-19. Rhodes-Conway says that at this time, she's only feeling mild symptoms and is up to date on all vaccinations and boosters. And now on to today's top stories. As the nation continues to cope with several recent high-profile mass shootings, the Dane County Board and area students are calling on lawmakers to act. Though local officials are unable to pass gun reform laws, the county board is demanding that the U.S. congressional leaders take action. WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. The Dane County Board of Supervisors, as well as members of the Youth Governance Program, are calling on Wisconsin's congressional delegation to take action on gun violence. The letter, signed by 31 of 37 supervisors and sent to the congressional delegation today, demands that Congress pass six federal gun reforms. 
Those laws include a ban on assault weapons, raising the minimum age for buying a rifle to 21, and passing the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. The letter follows three high-profile mass shootings in a Buffalo grocery store, Uvalde Elementary School, and Tulsa Hospital, three of 248 mass shootings so far this year. 19,000 people have died from gun violence in the United States so far this year, according to statistics from the Gun Violence Archive. Supervisor April Kigea co-wrote the letter along with three other supervisors, Alex Jewers of District 9, Dana Palabon of District 33, and Jacob Wright of District 17. She says that they wrote the letter because they say that enough is enough. So we need to stop talking about, you know, prayers and condolences and actually do things to make change. So we decided to come together to write this letter to hopefully bring some more attention to it and to get the ball rolling in some legislative areas. Kigea continues. Our kids are afraid to go to school. Like, and, and as a parent, like, it's just heartbreaking knowing that this happens and you're like, when I drop my kid off, am I going to be picking them up from school or not, you know? So it's just, I mean, some of it could be driven by fear, you know, which I, I have and I think a lot of my other, like I said, colleagues or parents have as well, but also from our kids. Like, they're just, they're really scared and this is something that just needs to be dealt with. The letter reads, quote, As our community mourns the loss of innocent school children, we must again demand that Congress urgently pass effective gun safety reform to curb the senseless violence that we are seeing all too often in the United States, end quote. Supervisor Jewers says that this time something feels different, like gun reform may actually be achievable. Just using our voices to highlight the tragedy that happened in Texas is is something that hopefully will help move our federal representatives to do something about this. There are so many, so many levers that we can pull to be able to ensure that some kind of change happens to be able to put an end to the gun violence. And if the urgency is now to do something, then that's, that's what we need to do. Also signing on to the letter were seven members of the Dane County Youth Governance Program, an extension of UW-Madison created to offer youth opportunities for leadership development and empowerment in local government. Gordon Allen, a member of the Youth Governance Program and student at Madison East High School, says that signing the letter is not a political action, but one to show legislators the thoughts of the youth today. Um, I think it's important because it shows that, like, I mean, these... As we saw from recent events, you know, what happened in Texas and then what happened in Racine, Wisconsin, um, a lot of the times it's, it affected those of, of a younger age, right? Uh, we see now with like mass shootings and something like the schools, it affected youth, right? But also I just want people to, I think part of it is because like a lot of these policies will affect the youth. In Wisconsin, two GOP candidates for state attorney general said earlier this week that they support expanding gun rights in Wisconsin, including restoring gun rights to those convicted of nonviolent felonies. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that candidates Adam Jarchow and Eric Tooney both supported the position during a debate between Republican candidates for attorney general. This Saturday, gun reform advocates with March for Our Lives will hold a march at the Capitol beginning at 3 p.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Last week, on the first day of Pride Month, a local Madison yarn shop found itself confronting chalk messages that included hashtag no pride. It also alluded to a new film from a far-right commentator. 
WORT reporter Andy Barrow has the details. Last week, chalk writing reading hashtag what is a girl, LGB, no pride, and what is a woman was discovered outside several Madison businesses. The chalking occurred on the first day of June, the start of Pride Month. The chalking was done by Mary Jo Walters, who made headlines last year when she withdrew her candidacy for a place in the Madison Metropolitan School District Board of Education. She gave up the race after making a Facebook post in which she referred to herself as transophobic. Walters says that some of the chalked hashtags refer to a recently released documentary. You know, when it comes to writing What is a Woman, um, I did that because it was the first day of Pride and also it was the release of the movie What is a Woman. So that was why I used that hashtag. The film purports to feature interviews on the topic of womanhood. Produced by far-right news outlet The Daily Wire, it features selectively edited interviews with trans activists and academics. News outlet LGBTQ Nation called the documentary propaganda and full of transphobic lies, and said it portrays the concept of gender transition as threatening to the Western Christian way of life. Walsh, who identifies himself as a theocratic fascist in his Twitter bio, has come under fire for allegedly using images of minors without their permission in the film. Walsh has also been criticized for calling the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse malicious prosecution and for promoting white supremacist replacement theory. I also asked Mary Jo about what she was trying to accomplish politically. I'm boycotting YouTube right now because they had a queer ad, an ad about queers at the beginning of the video I wanted to watch. I don't want to hear about queers before I'm about to watch a video. Ban... I I, uh, I don't want to search Google. I don't want to hear about. I don't want to hear about queer. I don't want to hear about trans. I don't want to hear about it. I, I'm done. She went on to describe her belief that transgender pride is a conspiracy to indoctrinate children. And why aren't we making a ban on anything that could be affecting those girls? That's what I'm talking about—a ban, because it's a hemorrhage, and you need a tourniquet. And the ban is the tourniquet. The art that you did on the sidewalks. Do you see that as a way of accomplishing that? Absolutely. Fiddlesticks Knits is a queer and woman-owned fabric and yarn store on Atwood Avenue. The store, which opened last summer during the pandemic, prides itself on inclusion, accessibility, and sustainably made items. Fiddlesticks was one of several businesses that had these messages chalked outside its shop. After finding the chalk and washing it away, owner Erica Haynes organized what she referred to as a counter-protest later in the day. That afternoon, members and allies of Madison's queer community wrote positive, pro-queer messages down the block. Um, So it was really good this time to have a really clear way to direct people to be like, here's where you should put your energy. Here's how we can right this wrong and, you know, get people out here to show that there are so many more people in this community that want to be inclusive and support and love the trans people of this community, the queer people of this community, um, and to just replace that transphobic nonsense with affirming things and kind of reclaiming the space. It's really lovely. In February, Fiddlesticks also had its progress flag torn down. The progress flag is a rainbow pride flag which incorporates a design symbolizing the trans community. Our flag was ripped down. They actually left the flag on the doorstep, um, but they bent the pole badly enough that we had to replace it. And that that one was very jarring and, uh, I think, disillusioning in a way. Like, it was just so bizarre walking up to my storefront and seeing that somebody had 
done something? Mary Jo denies being involved in this incident. Amanda Haynes, no relation to Erica, is the president of the Madison Knitters Guild. When I talked to her about the chalking, here's what she said. So the Madison Knitters Guild stands in solidarity of Fiddlestick Knits and the LGBT plus community. We are committed to making the knitting community in Madison and beyond safe and inclusive for all. There's absolutely no place here for behavioral language that degrades any neighbor in our community. These events take place against a national backdrop of rising anti-LGBTQ plus hate incidents. 2021 was the deadliest year for transgender and gender nonconforming people on record, with trans people of color being especially likely to be targets of violence. Reporting for WRT News, this is Andy Barrow. It's now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Schools in Madison have had to contend with shortages in food for students to eat. This comes as a result of supply chain disruptions brought on by the pandemic. An article in the Cap Times on Tuesday documented school struggles to feed students. And yesterday, WORT reporter Reed Kamai spoke to the author of that article. The disruptions to the supply chain have affected, among many areas of commerce, schools' ability to feed students. Shipping and production delays have forced schools to curtail their food offerings to students, resulting in small amounts of food to be shared throughout classrooms, and options which have been described as inadequate and appalling. Scott Gerard is the K-12 education reporter for the Cap Times. He's been following this situation throughout the school year. His article, Lunch is Lacking, Supply Chain Disrupts Food Service for MMSD, gives a deep dive into it. And I'm thrilled that Scott Gerard has joined me right now. Scott, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here, too. Now, um, so, so yeah, you had, you had that article. It was obviously goes very deep into it, gives, uh, gives a lot of great description about what has been going on. What have you heard about access to food, particularly from teachers, parents, and students? Yeah, so uh, it was something I was hearing about here and there throughout the school year, and, and I think it's toward the end of the school year gotten worse in a few places, so I heard a few more things, and, and that gave me enough to, to put together a full piece. And it, the biggest problem uh, from teachers' perspectives was a lot of times menus were getting switched at the last minute. And so, you know, the, the school would send out a lunch menu for the week uh, at the start of the week, and then by Tuesday, the menu was already out of date, um, and, and they were getting very different things than they expected. And oftentimes, the things they were getting uh, from the teachers' perspectives were pretty lacking. Um, and what that meant was they often had hungry students in the afternoon. And, you know, school meals are – research has just shown their importance uh, for learning, uh, for students' ability to, to sort of pay attention and focus on their learning. And so with hungry students, uh, teachers were either – dipping into their, you know, classroom snack supplies to supplement it, um, or I think in some cases ordering out lunches. So I, I don't think that was too regular of an event. Um, and, and actually seeing a lot of the responses to the article 
from some parents uh, has sort of solidified that they were well aware of, of the challenges uh, their students were facing in, in getting a good enough meal at school. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that that they had to sort of change like the menus of or change the options on the menus like midweek. Now, this is this is certainly not something I witnessed back in back in my day in in school. Is there any sort of timeline about when districts will be back to a greater level of certainty with um, with, you know, not having to 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 change the menus midweek? It's a great question. You know, obviously the school year here is coming to an end, and and I know there's a lot of hope within the district sort of central office that next year will be a bit more predictable. Um, One thing they're doing, they'll have a new food distributor, um, and then they're also getting more of their food commodities from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which they uh, consider a bit more guaranteed uh, to, to come through. And so the hope is that having uh, the new, both the new vendor, um, the uh, Department of Agriculture Commodities, and then I think a, a summer sort of following the year they had to plan um, and potentially come up with more uh, backup plans. Uh, I think they, there's a lot of optimism in central office that things will improve next year. Um, it certainly remains to be seen. And, and I think it's something very early in the school year next year that uh, really, I will be watching closely, and and I would imagine parents uh, should watch closely, and and teachers will be watching closely because it's like I said, school food is is a huge thing for for many kids. It's their main meal uh, meal of the day when they get breakfast and lunch at school, and so there's a lot of hope that uh, through some of those changes there can be a bit more consistency next year. One thing to note about next year, however is that as of now, uh, earlier in the pandemic, uh, the federal government allowed sort of uh, a blanket free lunch and free breakfast. And so any there, there was no socioeconomic status required to receive a free lunch. It was universal. That, as of now, is ending at the end of this month. And so that will return to some pre-pandemic issues of you know, certain students having to show uh, their socioeconomic status, their parents having to fill out forms, uh, other students having to pay for lunches. And so how that impacts things will be another factor in how the fall plays out. Uh, there certainly is some energy behind extending that from, from certain uh, national politicians, but as of now, I, I haven't seen any indication that is likely to be extended. So I think uh, that's another factor to watch at, at how this affects uh, the consistency of lunches in the fall. You mentioned some of the changes in terms of suppliers that will happen for next school year in terms of moving to the, to the newer suppliers. Now, I get that. I mean, you can't really write write you know new contracts for new suppliers like you know overnight. Now, the the district obviously knew of these problems. They they knew that this was going on. They they addressed it throughout the year. Why? I guess why did they not make some of the changes to uh, to the the vendors earlier? If 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 you know what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. So they had a contract with their food uh, supplier, Gordon Food Services, uh, for the school year, and so they tried to work through 
you know, that was, that was a contract agreement they were a part of. And so they tried to work through those issues with them. Um, but the, that supplier, uh, you know, I, there were some letters to the district and everything that showed they, they were dealing with staffing shortages. They weren't always getting uh, the supplies that they were supposed to bring then to the district. And so, you know, I think they tried to work with them and, and it just didn't, uh, didn't get results. And, and you, you can see that in some of the meals that uh, I mentioned in the article and that teacher shared with me, you know, a, a small bag of tortilla chips and a yogurt and string cheese uh, was a lunch. And, and, you know, the, the district is also when it, you know, if a, if a truck shows up without the items they expected uh, at the main food services building, well, as they're then putting food deliveries together to bring to schools, they have to still make sure to meet certain USDA guidelines uh, for, you know, fruits and grains and vegetables. And so they get creative with the definitions of those things. And, and the USDA guidelines are sort of uh, allow for that creativity, which, you know, is I would say the, to the district's benefit in that they can meet the requirements, but probably sometimes to students' detriment because uh, certain things aren't really nutritious, but they can be classified uh, under certain categories. You know, an, an apple juice, for example, counting as a fruit um, would, would be one example of, of meeting those fruit guidelines. Before we go, is there anything we haven't talked about yet that you would like to share? I think just to emphasize the re-emphasize the importance of school food and and whether it's the only meal a kid gets in a day or not, like to to not have enough to eat in the middle of a school day is just a huge challenge for kids. And so it's it's a really important subject to watch going into the fall. Is is the district able to do better? Because it will certainly have an impact on students' learning. It certainly has an impact on uh, the work environment for teachers and staff. And there are a a lot of school-based staff, uh, lunch staff, who care a lot about this and want to do the uh, best they can and and do better. And so I'll be very interested to see what happens. I know the district has sort of some bigger ideas and goals as far as scratch cooking, more creative recipes, and things like that, um, that the, the Food and Nutrition Services Director has spoken with me about in the past, and uh, I'll be interested to follow sort of how those bigger ideas come into play along with sort of meeting the basic needs uh, that they sometimes weren't able to this year. Well, I am interested to find out, too. I've been, <laughs> I've been speaking with Scott Gerard. He's the K-12 through education reporter for the Cap Times, who authored the article, Lunches Lacking, Supply Chain Disrupts Food Service for MMSD. And that article came out yesterday, and it's been a product of uh, some months of reporting. So, Scott, thanks so much again for talking with me today. Thank you for having me and, and covering this really important topic. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court handed down a decision reaffirming an open record policy adopted by the state nearly 20 years ago. This week on Transparency Talk, Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, 
and our contributor, Jonah Chester, unpack the case and what the court's decision means for government transparency in Wisconsin. Now, a quick reminder that this conversation is not specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you doing this week? Jonah, I've had a great week so far. You tell me why you've had a great week, Tom. I already know, but inform everybody else. Well, the Wisconsin Transparency Project won its first case at the Wisconsin Supreme Court on Tuesday. Big applauses and hoorays. Hooray, snaps for victory. This is one we've actually covered, I think, at least once, probably twice, or maybe a few more times on the show before. This is a case you have been litigating for a really long time, starting back in October 2020. And this is the case of Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, which is the state's largest business industry lobbying group versus Governor Tony Evers. And it's all about who can sue to stop the release of records. Tom, uh, give me the little bit of the background on this case. I know we've covered it on the show before, but for people who might not be in the loop, fill them in. Yeah, so if anybody's seen any reporting on this, it's uh, the headlines typically read something like uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court rules that the state can release records of COVID outbreaks at large businesses. That is not inaccurate. That is a fine way to describe it. That's uh, kind of the major effect of it. But really, the case itself, the question that the Supreme Court was answering is, who can actually sue to stop the release of records? And the answer is not very many people. So talk to me about the ruling that got handed down on Tuesday. What? Uh, tell me more about that decision. It takes a little bit of a history lesson. So we're going to go back to the 90s. In 1996, Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time ruled, creating this new right saying record subjects, people who are named in records, can sue to stop the release of those records. And quite literally, chaos ensued. There was a flood of cases, people suing and saying, I don't want my records out there in the public. I don't want anything about me to be be talked about. And just a few years later, in 2003, the legislature passed a, a comprehensive reform saying, you know, courts aren't deciding this, we're deciding this, and we're going to say that nobody can sue unless we say they can. And they created a very narrow category of people that can sue to stop the release of a very small set of, of, of records. And so pretty much that was the, the status quo for almost two decades, except in 2020, as you mentioned, we have this lawsuit and this lawsuit is trying to get around that 2003 law. So what happened here was uh, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services was going to release some statistical records uh, about large employers. This is uh, employers of 25 or more workers where there was at least two people who either tested positive or were identified in contract tracing. So it's not necessarily that there was an outbreak at that business, but just that it was touching on an outbreak. And as, as a quick side note, this information was already out there from a lot of county websites. There were a lot of states that were putting this kind of information out there to you know, let people track the progress of the outbreak. Remember, this is 2020. Uh, it was quite different back then. And WMC tried to sue and stop arguing, hey, we don't want our members' names getting painted with a scarlet letter. They'll go out of business if you tell the public that there was some COVID there. 
And I, with the Wisconsin Transparency Project, we represent in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which had requested some of this information. And we intervened in the case and said, wait a minute, there's this 2003 law that says they, WMC can't even file a lawsuit like this. Nobody can. Okay, so t- tell me, tell me more of the background here. How does that, how does that 2003 decision play into it? Because this is a complex issue with like a lot of different textures to it. So the Supreme Court agreed with us and said, yes, this 2003 law, the law from the legislature, prohibits anybody unless they are specifically named in that law from suing to stop the release of records, and typically that is rank and file government employees suing to stop the release of their disciplinary records. It doesn't mean they win, but uh, that's kind of the only category of records that can be challenged this way. And and so the court said, quote, the decision whether to permit public access to a record in response to a request lies with the custodian of the record, not its subject. And they also said, we hold that section 19.356, which is the 2003 law, clearly and unambiguously eliminated the common law rights on which WMC relies. So 1996 to 2003, anybody named in a record could sue to stop it. After 2003, that was no longer the case. Section 19.356. What, a, what an absolute banger that one is. Uh, so what would, a, what would a WMC victory have meant in this case? You know, 96 to 2003 was really a dark ages for public transparency. Anybody with enough money and a a good reason they wanted to stop the records, they could just tie up the release of records for years in litigation. Even if they lost eventually, if they wanted to spend the money to push that date when their, their indiscretions finally got publicized for two years, they could do that. If WMC had won, we would have returned to that because their argument would have required a, a concluding that anybody could sue to stop the release of records as long as they could claim that their reputation would be harmed by their release. Which is, uh, which sounds like a pretty serious thing. Like, let's say if I'm suing to get police disciplinary records for somebody who might still be on the force, they, in this hypothetical universe we're imagining, could they have then sued and just said, no, this is personally damaging to me. I don't want that released. If, if a police officer was a rank and file employee, they might still have that right ah, under the statute. Okay. But for a lot of other records and a lot of other public officials, that's not the case. So you might, you might remember this from former Representative Stausch Krasinski, who was found by legislative HR to have sexually harassed one of the female staffers in the Capitol. And if WMC's argument had been accepted, he could have sued to stop the release of those records. You know, anybody who thinks I don't want these records released could have sued to stop stop their release. So this decision goes far beyond just like business COVID outbreak numbers. Yes. Yeah, it is not. That is the practical effect of this particular decision in the narrow aspect. But looking at it more broadly, yeah, it means that we don't have to worry about this flood of cases where people sue to try to stop the release of records about them. Hmm. All right. Well, Tom, congratulations on your win. Thank you. But we've come to the end of our time for this week's episode. I've been joined, as I mentioned at the top, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks for joining me, and I hope you're able to take some time off this weekend to celebrate this victory. We're going to find a way to celebrate, definitely. Remember, everybody, if you don't ask, you won't know. This week on our beer feature for Minting Wart, Contributor Colin Morgan explains the basics of beer and food pairing. This is Fermenting Wart. I'm your host, Colin Morgan. 
Wine is the king of pairing with food. Not only that, but it is the de facto most sophisticated alcoholic beverage. Beer drinkers are peasants, rolling in the squalor, reveling in drunkenness. Not. The idea of wine being not only a more sophisticated beverage, but also pairing better with food is a shame. Unfortunately, the wine folks have had much better PR than the beer industry folks in the last century. It has resulted in many people associating beer only with keggers and frat bros, and now hipsters. The fact of the matter is, beer has a wider range of diverse flavors than wine. And thus, there's actually a better chance that you'll find a beer and food pairing that works. The idea that beer is a lesser drink is antiquated, and it's time we give it the credit it deserves. That's why today I'll be sharing some pairing theory and ideas that get you going on your taste journey. But where to start? I guess the basics of color can give you a little information, but where you really want to start is the aroma, assuming you don't know the typical flavor and aroma profiles of different styles. You say, but then I'll have to open a bottle before I even start cooking. Yes, you will. If you really want to go down this rabbit hole, and you might, you'll have some flavor research to do. Fortunately, this is beer we're talking about, so I know you'll be up to the task. So aroma. Beer aroma is very complex, and that relates directly to its versatility to pair with food. But where does it come from? Based on the kind of aromas you can get out of any beer you are sniffing, you can get a good idea of where that aroma is coming from, from the brewer. Let's start with malt aroma. This is where color of the beer can give you an idea of what's going on in the glass as well. Normally, I'd say don't always judge a book by its cover, but in this case, we can do a little bit of that. Sorry, Mom. Malt aromatics have all sorts of fun descriptors like bready, duh, honey-like, toasty, marshmallowy, biscuity, toffee-ish, nutty, caramelly, chocolatey, coffee-ish, or espresso-like. We can also throw in some interesting fruit notes, too, like plums, raisins, molasses, grape-like. As I've said before, the darker the malt, the more of those darker flavors pop out. So toffee is darker than white bread, and chocolate is darker than toffee. Take a look at your beer, then use that sniffer to get some information about what types of malt are in there and where you should go with your food pairing. For malt, I like to go like with like, beer with food. Let the aroma lead you in that right direction. Lighter bready notes or fruity notes will lead me to lighter fare. Darker roasted notes or heavy dark fruit lead to a more roasted, heavier dish or perhaps desserts. We are looking for complementary flavors and don't want food or beer to overpower the other. Okay, so while your schnoz is in that beer, move past malt and look for other road signs. Hop aromatics range from floral to fruity, lemony, grassy, grapefruity, minty, piney, earthy, resiny, dank, and some other odd ones like caddy, weed-like, and herbaceous. Again, I'd like to go like with like, 
if you get a big smack of citrus fruit with a hint of malt aromatics, think about bright dishes that have that citrus pop as well. Earthy hop notes pair well with earthy flavors like roasted mushrooms or many English dishes and Belgian country classics. Yeast aromatics can be absurdly complex and nuanced, however. From eggy sulfur to fruity esters, exotic spices like anise and peppercorn and smokiness, acidic notes perhaps, and of course the barnyard aromas. Trust me, some of the best beers in the world are considered to be horse blanket. The interplay of these can be confusing, so I go with a simplistic approach. What is the overall impression that I get without thinking about it too terribly much? Frankly, that is the approach I go with for most things in life, and I love it. Okay, so you've got an idea of some of the aromatics. Now you've got to taste the beers. When tasting beer, it is a good idea to go light to heavy, sometimes light to dark. You don't want to overload your palate and miss some of the nuance of a lighter beer. When pairing, I'd look for a couple of things. Body, carbonation, and flavor profile. Body is synonymous with mouthfeel, or how a beer moves in your mouth. If it sounds a little pompous, it is, but I suppose anything taken too seriously is a little pompous. Anywho, a big, viscous beer probably won't work too well with lighter fare and a lighter, more watery beer won't stand up to more robust meals. Carbonation works for beer in a way that wine can't. It has the ability to mop up those heavy flavors and cut through mouth-coating foods like cheese, eggs, and chocolate. It's part of the reason why some beers are refreshing. And the last one I mentioned, the flavor profile, brings it all together. The esteemed Garrett Oliver, brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewing and master beer and food pair, describes two basic categories, bright and dark. Brightness is usually dry, sometimes zippy with acidity. I tend to think of citrus, spices, and other bright flavors. So pilsners with their intense bitterness, spicy herbaceous notes, and scrubbing bubble carbonation would be a good example of a bright beer. Or perhaps a Belgian wheat beer with assertive spices and lively carbonation. These go well with dishes where there's a fat to cut and nice bold aromatics, like a Thai fish coconut curry, for example. Darkness, on the other hand, refers to those roasted types of flavors like chocolate, toffee, and the like, or plum and raisin of many Belgian and English beers. Some of the bigger beers in the world belong to this category, and they do great with big, robust flavors like roasts, some mushroom dishes, and most dark meats with a little bit of browning on them. That being said, some darker beers can be light on the palate, and just a hint of those roasty type of flavors lend well to foods that are in between heavy and light. So I guess the idea is to follow your senses, match like with like, and try to find some contrast that complements both food and beer. Thanks for listening. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Do you have a hobby long left in the dust that you are contemplating reviving? <laughs> I miss knitting. Uh, for contributor Jennifer Fields, it's sewing. And in this episode of Radio Chipstone, she elicits the help of her friend, artist and retired educator Joe Jensen, to see if relearning to sew is like riding a bike. I remember the days. The only sewing classes I ever took were in 7th and 8th grade at Hartford Avenue Public School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a bajillion years ago, early 70s. And, um, but all my sewing beyond high school is trying to figure it out on my own. Did you have to make a jumper in school? We first made an apron. No, we didn't. What did we make first? I want to say first we made something small and square, maybe a placemat. And then we made an apron, and then we made a jumper that, oh my God, we made, I made a jumper with my mother, and I was in a fashion show wearing that jumper, and I have photo evidence of it. Ooh, is it, is it the kind that has like the buttons at the top and the big patch pocket? No, this one had a contrasting yoke. Oh my. And it had pockets on the bottom. It had a collar and like little puff sleeves. Fancy. It had buttons. Buttons. Lots of pink. Ugh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I didn't have. I didn't make the choice. My mom did. So there you go. My my was a very simple jumper, and it had no sleeves. It just had these flaps that buttoned on the front, and then it had big patch pockets, and the interior yoke, the the interfacing, the facing portion of it was the same color as the the jumper. It was really super simple. It was a simplicity pattern, which were easier to read supposedly and I would say that simplicity pack patterns back in the day when I was a kid and just learning how to sew were a heck of a lot easier to read than say a Butterick or McCall's those were far more complex so there isn't a standard from what you remember in learning how to sew there wasn't a standard sort of method of writing a pattern no, the copy was written differently by whoever wrote it, okay? There is a standard, kind of a standard of like um, the graphics and things, how they do the weird little dot thing for something on the wrong side, and then there's like little lines and, and things like that that are kind of standard operating. And similar names for parts of the pattern and stuff, but how it is written is really important because that can really screw you up when you're trying to put something together and you you have to think visually, you have to think in three dimensions because sewing is basically, you know, you're, you're building something with needles and threads and fabric. So you have to think three-dimensionally how this thing is going to be turned right side out and look right when you're all done with it. When you're talking to a newbie, where do you start them? Where do you, what's the, as, a, as an educator, where, because you're getting people who may not even want to be in the room. When I start teaching children about how to sew, uh, before we even get to a pattern, because I didn't do really any pattern sewing with the kids, because you can't in 45 minutes and 30 kids in a classroom. You just can't. It's kind of hard. The first thing we talk about are things like a piece of fabric, that it, there's a grain of the fabric, and I talk about how the fabric is set up on a loom, but certain fabric isn't woven 
You know, if you think of things like uh, polar fleece and stuff like that, or knit fabric, that's something else. So I had like a PowerPoint that I went through with the kids to show them the different things to get them to identify what was knit, what was um, woven kind of stuff. And I would talk about the selvage of the fabric, which is the edge of the fabric where the um, threads of woven fabric, where the... Um, where the threads are turned back so Oof. that you can't you can't tear the fabric on the selvage edge it's tight and that it can be used as kind of your straight edge sometimes when you're sewing we talk about the right side and the wrong side of the fabric we talk about the bias which is if you were to slash at an angle across the fabric and that when it, it because what I did do with the kids in seventh grade is we cut out squares of fabric to make quilts. So they made simple square quilts, okay, like lap quilts. And But I had to teach the kids how to cut the squares out because if you give a kid like a cardboard square and you give them a piece of material, squares will be all over the dang thing. It's a rare child that will put it neatly out straight in a, in a graph kind of pattern where the edges are meeting so you know you don't have to cut 20 times usually you'll get somebody of more of a creative mind they just pop that thing on there and it's all different ways and you know wasting all sorts of fabric and stuff like that so you have to teach that you're going to do it this way and the reason for it it's efficient you know you save you money and you're not going to get this weird stretchy thing happening if you cut something on the bias so the first step is to familiarize people with fabric how it works, how you cut it. Is there a fabric that works best for a newbie? You got it right here with all this cotton fabric. This is like perfect because it doesn't go anywhere. It's not slippery. It, it doesn't run if you, um, you know, like certain fabrics like satins and um, silks and things like that. If you're using a dull needle or if your scissors dull and you try and cut it, the the threads will just pull and look like crap. Um, so a good sturdy cotton fabric is the way to go. If you had to create a box for people that you would just hand them over and it would have the tools that they needed to start their first sewing project, what would those tools be? What would be in that box? I would have pins and I would get the pins that have the little knobby heads because they're easier to find, you know, in your fabric and stuff. You need a sewing scissors that is only ever used for fabric. And you jump up and snatch it out of somebody's hand if they're trying to go for the wrapping paper or plastic or anything else. Little scissors for snipping threads. A single edge razor blade. That works a heck of a lot better than one of those little pickers, the, you know, the seam ripper thingies. I like using a single edge blade, but get yourself one of those pickers because maybe you, you want one, you know, I don't know, try it out. Oh, and needles. You want some hand sewing needles. A really good, like, three foot long metal um, yard yardstick. Not wood. Of course there's thread. You got to have thread. Um, and uh, for a sewing machine, you can get really decent used sewing machines. Don't go for something all flashy and, uh, you know, has a bajillion different 
knobs on it for strange uh, embroidery stitches unless that's what you're fitting to do is make 50,000 aprons with weird embroidery stitches on because they're pretty much useless. Basically need a zigzag stitch. Most sewing machines have some kind of attachment for doing buttonholes. So that's in like a back stitch or a, a reverse stitch so that you can do that. Um, let's see. I have to think a little more what I have to. <laughs> ah, the other thing, a thimble. You know, a thimble is good. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Andy Barrow and Reed Kamai. Special thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan, Joan Inchester, and Tom Kamenick, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Dane Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't miss an episode of WORT's Local News. Find the local news as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.